Hello, friends, and welcome to the podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Goo Goo Mattress Company. Super comfortable and very affordable. Nothing better than a great night's sleep with a Goo Goo Mattress. Discount codes available later in the podcast. Greetings, everybody. This episode, we are treated to a wonderful conversation from an amazing woman who's had a fascinating life. Karen Hill Anton joins the podcast to discuss her memoir, The View from Breast Pocket Mountain. Published in late 2020, it has won literary awards and has a five-star ranking from over 160 Amazon reviews. We talk about the motivation behind writing her first book, She offers sound advice for anyone contemplating writing a memoir. We dive into some of the backstories and highlights from her book and the challenges not only she dealt with, but what every writer of a memoir faces. The View from Breast Pocket Mountain is a unique and previously untold story, a treasure trove of experiences crossing borders and cultures. If you ever wondered what your life would be like taking that road without a map, then this is the book for you, and this is the podcast for you. Direct from Tokyo, this is Now in Zen with Karen Hill Anton. The other thing I will tell you, many people have told me they'd like to write a memoir, and I encourage everyone to do it. I, th- I think it's a, it's a wonderful experience because it's a cathartic experience. Of course, you want it to be more than that. I think at first it will be cathartic. Process will be cathartic. Yeah. Absolutely. But for the reader, be, you being cathartic has nothing yeah, yeah, to do with exactly. them. Exactly. But that's a byproduct. Yeah. Positive byproduct Absolutely. of writing a memoir. It's a self-revelation like nothing else. But at the same time, readers have told me they know they couldn't be honest. And that's a very important aspect of it. I feel it's one of the things readers respond to in my memoir is that it is honest. The View from Breast Pocket Mountain so far has received three literary awards and has a 4.9 rating from over 135 reviews on Amazon. Are you surprised just a little at the success from your first book? Not really. And I don't say that, I hope and not in any arrogant way. I really felt that I had a good story and that I was able, through work, to write it well. The book was also well edited. I will be very clear about that. When I decided I was gonna make this a a project, I spoke with a friend of mine who happens to be a best-selling author, a ghostwriter, and a memoirist. She's um, done quite a bit. And she read the manuscript and she said, this is great, but it it needs structure. And I said, okay. And then I hired a developmental editor. She said, you have a great story. But then essentially said the same thing. It needs structure. What does that mean, needs structure? Well, I'll tell you. But first I'll say, uh, and be very honest, that I didn't pay attention to either one of them, (laughs) even though they're they're professionals. (laughs) And I just thought, you know, I patted myself on, on the back and said, well, they said I had a great story. But then I realized as I was writing it, it's almost like the story gets away from you. It's out of control. First of all, I've lived a long time, and I've had you know, quite a varied and expansive life. 
and trying to put it all together, really not easy. But in the challenge of trying to impose structure, and this is what it really takes, you must impose it, otherwise it will be a ramble. I did this, I did that, I went here, I went there, I met this person, it's vignettes. But if you're trying to tell a story, you can only do that by imposing structure and developing a narrative flow that will catch the, the reader. A narrative flow. Yeah. That's the word I was looking for. Important. And they both said that you didn't have that. I didn't in- have it in the okay. beginning, absolutely. So I had Robert Whiting, the author, on my podcast before, and he said something very interesting. And mm-hmm. I quote him, Writing a memoir is the hardest form of nonfiction writing there is because you're basically interviewing yourself and your natural inclination is to make yourself look good. You do not know what's interesting or important to the reader. It's a painful process, unquote. Was it difficult to write your memoir? I wouldn't say it was difficult so much as it was a challenge. One of the biggest challenges is answering the question, what's in it for the reader? Because the first thing you're doing when you're writing a a memoir is telling your story. You're so invested in it. It's interesting to you. It's probably interesting to your family and friends. Right. But you have a much larger audience, and that's who you need to be thinking of the entire time. Once I was able to do that, then I was able to connect with the reader as I was writing, as opposed to being so introspective that it becomes almost a meditation. Did you keep asking yourself as you were writing this? Absolutely. Would this be interesting to somebody who doesn't even know me or even really have any interest in Japan? Yeah, it wasn't so much that I was asking myself that question as I wrote, as having an awareness that if it became too introspective, it would become something that, that didn't really touch other people. And I think it's, it's really a conundrum because what a, memoir, a memoirist does is look inward. But if you do that at the, the same time that you're trying to reach a wide audience you, uh, and an audience you, you in fact do not know, it can become, I think, too much navel-gazing in, right. in, in a way. Oh, and, and I don't think that works for a memoir. Is writing a memoir narcissistic? I guess it could be, and no doubt the hundreds of celebrity memoirs are narcissistic. But I I didn't feel that about writing my memoir. I I truly thought I have a story to tell. I believe it's interesting. I would be interested in it if someone else had written this story. And I'd just like to tell it as best I could. Well, your book is really split into two main themes. The first half of the book reads like an adventure story hitchhiking across Europe working as a chef in a castle meeting Elizabeth Taylor getting deported from the happiest country on earth driving a dilapidated VW Beetle across Iran and Afghanistan is this too many spoilers no go go, go right ahead (laughs) (laughs) they're all in the book yeah yeah and then the second half of the book is your life and I would add challenging life in Japan, starting with living at the dojo with a tyrannical head sensei in 1975, all the way through your numerous exploits, struggles, and excitement, all the way up to 2020. 
that that's all of it. How would you summarize the arc or the flow, I guess, of your narrative? I don't know that I can summarize it so well. Um, the beginning of my discovering the world from the first trip that I took outside of the United States when I was 19, hitchhiking all over and really to have that experience, that interaction, that excitement, that discovery as a young person really shaped the arc and, and direction of my life. I think you wrote in the book that it changed your life profoundly. Absolutely changed my life. I've never been the same since. Well, the title is The View from Breast Pocket Mountain, and Breast Pocket in Japanese is Futokoro Yama. But Futokoro can also mean having no money, being broke. It can also mean sabishi, being a little bit lonely or alone. Right, right. So isn't that a bit ironic? You were alone and you weren't super well off. Yeah, I guess, you know, futokoro or the kanji also is natsukashi. What is that? Nostalgic. Exactly. I'm more associated with that because you can almost have a choice. But, you know, it wasn't even so much that we were broke. We didn't, well, I guess we were. I mean, we didn't have a, a, a lot of money, but we didn't need a lot of money. So it wasn't a problem. Right. And as I think you can see in the book, I can adjust to what the situation is. Yeah. During the time we were living there, I didn't think, oh, this is such a hardship. We don't have this. We don't have that. And I just remembered we'd lived very, very simply. And one of the things, and I sometimes remind my husband, that I would only permit, and I say permit because I'm, I'm in charge in our household, <laughs> to have butter on Sundays. What's wrong with butter? Yeah, uh, it wasn't even that something was wrong with it, but it was it was an expensive thing. And Couldn't so, you make your own butter? Yeah, I certainly wasn't making butter. Oh my goodness, I was baking bread. I was making yogurt. I was pickling uh, umeboshi. I was doing absolutely everything. I, don't tell me I would be churning butter. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, maybe you should have moved to a place called Matsuriyama or Yufukuyama, like Party Mountain uh, yeah. or Well Off Mountain. <laughs> yeah. Might have changed your fate. Well, let's let's dive into your book for a second. Your mm. first Japan experience when you first arrived in '75 was pretty unique. It was difficult. Could you describe a little bit about your very first year in Japan? Well, the very first year was at the dojo. There is almost n- nothing to describe, and everything, as readers will find. I detail the experience of living in the dojo, of living under a tyrannical. Sensei, yeah, uh, I think it was uh, two, almost three chapters. The, yeah, yeah, it, it was probably the longest chapter, and it was a yeah a seminal experience. It's really the first experience we had uh, of Japan of just living in in this place and being directed absolutely in everything, every day, every minute. You know what we ate, where you slept, what you wore, what you did. Yeah. This was my life. Yeah. When I was reading that, it almost felt like you were living in a cult. Yeah, it, it wasn't a cult, okay? And, and I'd like to, to be re- very clear about that because, generally speaking, people are not free to leave, leave cults, <laughs> right? You're, right. You're, you're, you're really sort of caught in a, in a prison. I could have walked out of the dojo anytime I wanted 
any time. There, there was no, no pressure or no fear about leaving. Uh, there, there was none of, of that. We stayed because my husband had made a commitment to, to be there one year and he finished that, that commitment. No doubt I would have been happier having been someplace else, but I, I was able to, to deal with it. But it, it wasn't the worst thing in the, in the world. It was just so constricting. That, that was the, wor the worst part of it. I, I'm not someone who likes to be told you know, what sure. to, to do, etc. Well, Americans especially are very uh, militant almost about their independence. Yeah. And when you're in that scenario, going to a foreign country for the first time, that must have been a double whammy. In a way, but at the same time, Andrew, I, I will tell you that you know we had just come off the road for one year, really never knowing you know what we were going to do next. No one day was like the day before it. Where are you going to sleep uh, where that night? Where are you going to sleep? Where are you going to eat? Who are you going to meet? So there was nothing but freedom. We had a full year of that, and by the time we got to the dojo, I really didn't mind so much being in one place. So it wasn't heinous, I, I would mm -hmm. say, in, in, in that sense. That chapter was a really good read. I really in, enjoyed it. Huh? But living at the dojo, I think, as you mm, said, was yeah. for one year, was a very ascetic yeah, experience, absolutely, yeah. I should add. Was there anything you learned during this time which impacted you, which maybe still affects your life today? Probably just learning to function as an integral member of a group. Which is important in yeah, Japan. The, it's, it's number one as far as I'm concerned, is really you know, being able to do that. But at the same time, and as I write in the, the memoir, there were some instances where I thought, oh no, I'm not doing this, you know, this particular exercise, or I'm not going to be in this class, you know, and I was able to get out of it or pretend I was doing something else. Or, Play the gaijin card. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that didn't work at the dojo at no, all. Probably yeah. not. Yeah. But it, yeah, I think just learning to, to function as a member of a, a group, and it, it was, that wasn't the worst thing in the world. And now I feel that's become a part of who I am. After 46 years here and living uh, in, in the countryside, living in a Japanese community, having responsibilities in, in, in the community, meeting the expectations of the community, I you know, learned years and years ago when perhaps I would think, Oh, well, you know, Sundays I do calligraphy, Monday to Fridays I write, and I don't let anything get me off you know, that path. But sometimes there would be some neighborhood responsibility, and there would be no way I could say, oh, I'm not going to do this. It was my turn, it was my responsibility as part of the group, the, of the neighborhood, of the community. I was called upon to do it, and I did it, and I still do. You separate your trash is what you're trying to say. Oh, no. My husband does the trash thing. <laughs> but, and yeah. You've done some amazing things which today we would consider extremely dangerous. Hitchhiking across Europe, camping out in Iran and Afghanistan, driving through the Middle East. And you wrote something that I truly believe as well. You always assumed the positive and the positive is what happened. But how much of this was attitude? How much of it was luck? And how much do you think was just that era? All three of those, absolutely all three. When I hitchhiked in Europe um, in the first time, and that was in 1965, and as I said, when I started out, I was 19 years old, I hitchhiked alone. 
it was absolutely safe. This is not to say that the possibility of you know some unfortunate thing happening couldn't happen, but it didn't. Did, did you feel that it was a dangerous thing to Absolutely do? Absolutely not. And I always try to make that clear to people. I, I am not a risk taker. I'm not adventurer in the sense. Uh, I'm not jumping out of planes or any kind of thing like that. No bungee it, jumping. It, no, 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 no. Absolutely not. But I now have three daughters. And a few years ago, uh, my youngest wanted to travel on her own in Europe. Yeah, I was apprehensive, to say the very least. I told her under no circumstances could she hitchhike. Do as I say, not as I did. <laughs> do, do the intelligent thing for the time now. It, right. The world has changed. It is no longer a safe thing to do. We were fortunate. We were able to travel border to border across Iran and Afghanistan yeah. at a time it was possible. Well, now, now that part of your book is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And when I first bought the book, I really thought it was going to be mainly about Japan. Yeah, and, a lot of people do. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, over half of the book mm-hmm. is about your travel through Europe. Right. And it made me think, do you have a map of your journey that you took across Europe, maybe with like little pins stuck in like the memorable spots or anything like that? I actually had a map, the whole of a map that I uh, referenced in, in the memoir and that I kept for many years after that, that first trip. Unfortunately, with my moving around, and it was lost uh, among my things, yeah. you know, but I, I did have it, and it, it was well-worn. I would imagine. I, yeah, yeah. I, I would love to, to see it now, but it, it's gone. Probably it's gone. some of the country's names have changed. There's new countries on the route that you went. Yugoslavia doesn't exist. No. <laughs> no start there, yeah. yeah it's like, sure. not really. Do you still have the handwritten note of gratitude from Elizabeth Taylor? I don't. Uh, again, and you that's enough. Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, these things will. I don't have the uh, the autographed copy of Cats Twenty Two from Joseph Heller. Oh yeah, you wrote yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, because uh, you loaned that to somebody. I loaned you never it got to it back. Yeah, I, I never did. You've surrounded yourself from a very young age with people who cared for you and took you under their wing at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Your art teacher, Mr. Spilka, Joseph Heller, the writer. Right. Rosetta, the food critic, yeah. dance teacher Martha Graham, and ballet master Alfredo Corvino. Yeah. The arts have a big influence on you. I guess you express this through your calligraphy and your writing? I guess so. When I was studying dance, I would say somewhat seriously, that was my, my expression of my creativity was in dance. But it's hard to say because... I know I am a creative person, and it comes out in, in different ways, it's sometimes in calligraphy, sometimes in dance, you know, and through my writing. I think you can also see in the memoir, I was never someone so directed, so focused, you know, ambitious, or knew I am absolutely doing this, this is what I want to achieve. I don't appear to be that kind of person. I have, to the extent I could, followed out everything that I found of interest and that I found stimulated my desire for creativity. I love dance. How are you doing? Now I'm yeah. uh, great. Doing I'm, right? Yeah, doing absolutely okay, great. Yeah. Everything's flowing okay for you? 
I think you so. Yeah, okay, I really I can't complain about my life, even if maybe if I do on, on, on occasion. Oh no, but, I mean I mean this podcast right now. I mean right now. Oh, oh yeah, sorry. Oh, oh yeah, no, I'm doing fine. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah no, great. You, you're okay with your water? <laughs> yeah, and all yeah, that? absolutely fine. All right. Thanks. Yeah. No, I always like to ask midway through because guests are usually speaking a lot. Yeah. Sometimes they don't have a chance to. They've sipped their water. Or <laughs> take a breath. Every now and then, I like to take a time out. Oh, oh, that's good. Very considerate. Thank you. I'm fine. Consideration is my middle name. Oh, that's good. Oh, your <laughs> wife must love it. <laughs> well, she'd say that I have about 20 different middle names. Oh, okay. <laughs> we all know getting a great sleep is important. And this is what Goo Goo is all about. Super comfortable mattresses at very affordable prices and delivered to your home for free. They back up their best sleep ever promise with a 100-night money-back guarantee. Learn more at gugu.jp and enter the coupon code ZEN for your 20% discount. Goo Goo. Better sleep, better you. What was your motivation for writing The View from Breast Pocket Mountain? The first motivation was I believed I had an interesting story to tell and, and that I could write it well. That was one. Second is that I knew I had a wide and really dedicated audience um, readership when I was writing my cross-cultural column for the Japan Times. Right. But I always knew readers were only getting part of my story. I didn't come to Japan full-blown. I was 30 years old when I arrived here, and I had quite a bit of life before arriving here and a lot of life after having left the Japan Times. I I thought it would be interesting to readers. For most of my so-called platform now, but so many of the people who are reading my memoir, who write to me, who review it, who praise it, are people who read the column. In fact, just before coming here, I got a message on Facebook from a woman in Georgia, and she just said, you don't know me, but I lived in Japan for 25 years, and I thought of your column as saving me. Oh my it gosh. is what helped me get through my time in Japan. How does that make you feel when you hear a story like that where you've, you've touched somebody's life? Oh, wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And and not in you know a puffed up with pride sense, but I have always written from my experience, trying to reach people, being honest, being as clear as, as I could about my experience. But I, readers really responded to that, you know, that they felt that they knew me, even though you know we'd never met. How many years did you write the advice column for the Japan Times called okay. Crossing Cultures? Yeah, it wasn't an advice column, but though a lot of people did write to me for advice, it wasn't an advice column at oh, it all. it wasn't? Okay. No, no, it, it was really just my perspective as being an American woman, married to an American, raising a family in rural Japan. That's really what it, what it was about. Were you always a good writer? Yeah, whether I was good or not, I don't know. But I, you know, I felt this was something I wanted to do. I felt I was pretty good at it, and I didn't hesitate to do it. A number of my essays you know, were, were accepted in, in publications, and so, so I w- was happy with it. More dreams have been shattered by a lack of confidence than a lack of talent. Very interesting that <laughs> you should say that. Exactly. I mean, you have to be willing to take a chance and feel that 
well, I, I've written this piece, I've done the best that I can, and, and, and I'm going to put it out there. And you learn as you go. It helps you t- to build confidence, one, by doing it, and two, by you know, having the work accepted and by readers' responses. Very encouraging, that is. You said mm-hmm. Crossing Cultures wasn't an advice column. Not at all, yeah. But you got a lot of questions a lot and of a qu- lot of yeah. advice requests. Do you like giving advice? I don't dislike it. Oh, well, I have four children, so I've been advising them for forever. But, you know, I like being helpful. I like the idea that the people who read my column felt that they could write to me and ask for advice or seek my help or guidance in something. I understand and I could certainly appreciate that sometimes people are having a difficult time, even if they can bounce ideas off someone or get another perspective. I was very glad I could do that. And this was way before the internet, so oh, people please. had no resources to get Absolutely. information. Many of the people who respond to the memoir and who, and who write me and say how meaningful the column was. Why did Crossing Cultures end? I quit. I woke up one day and said, I've done this enough. But you enjoy writing. Oh, I enjoyed it immensely. And I didn't do it for the money. Let me just tell you, it wasn't, you know. I think I've always known when to move on, when to change, when to try something new, when to open the door a little wider. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I would say just intuitively, I think a day in May 1999, I literally woke up and realized I've done this enough. How long did you do it? I did Crossing Cultures, I think 10 years, but before that I had done another column for the Japan Times, Hamamatsu Highlights. I did that, I think, five years, and I started writing for them in, I think it was 83. Something that started off as a hobby and a joy, once it becomes an obligation, it ceases to be a hobby or a joy anymore, right? Right. I mean, this was a job, so I definitely wouldn't call it a hobby. <laughs> Karen, regarding the whole process of writing your memoir, mm-hmm. you were publishing it, you talked about the editors, and mm-hmm. now you're promoting it. What advice would you give to someone contemplating writing a memoir? A lot of people that have been in Japan for a long time. I've been here 30 years, right. and within my sphere of friends, 20, 30, everybody's got a fairly interesting story Story, to tell. Absolutely. You would only want to think, what is it I have to tell readers? You might want to just write it because you want to get your story down. You know, maybe you've reached the point in your your life, you're, you're at a certain age, put it all together in writing or on paper. Maybe you, you want to do it just as a legacy for your children. But if you want to do it for a wider audience, number one, you have to think, and I'll repeat it, what's in it for the reader? What will make them care? What will interest the reader? The other thing I will tell you, many people have told me they'd like to write a memoir, and I encourage everyone to do it. I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful experience because it's a cathartic experience. Of course, you want it to be more than that. I think at first, it will be cathartic. Process will be cathartic. Yeah. Absolutely. But for the reader, be, you being cathartic has nothing yeah, yeah, to do with exactly. them. Exactly. But that's a byproduct. Yeah. Positive byproduct Absolutely. of writing a memoir. It's a self-revelation like nothing else. But at the same time, readers have told me they know they couldn't be honest. That goes back to my very first question. Right. And that's a very important aspect of it. I feel it's one of the things readers respond to in my memoir is that it is honest. 
some hardships. You talk about definitely a lot of tragedy that yeah, you've had in your life. Yeah, right. One of the reviewers said you made them cry out of joy, sadness, many reasons why you would cry. And, right. And, and you hit on all of them <laughs> for this that, reader. It's a life. But again, when I say honesty, you, you don't have to tell readers anything you don't want, want them to know. You don't have to invite them into your bed. But if you're holding back that thing that connects yeah. with readers, then you, I feel then you haven't done your job a, a, as a memoirist. That's an excellent point. One thing you didn't write much about in your memoir was your time as a corporate intercultural consultant. Mm-hmm. Why is that? I don't think I wrote anything about it, actually. It's on my website, but I don't write about that experience because that was work. That was a, a job I did. This was not a memoir that I, I felt needed to go into the business side of, of my life. Also, imposing a structure, keeping to a, a narrative, a theme, I didn't really feel it had a place so much. Yeah, I can see and, that. Yeah, and that it wasn't, as, um, it wasn't important. The other thing, and from a very practical standpoint, there is a limit. A memoir is pretty much expected to be no more than 300 pages. Okay, never mind that Barack Obama's is 700 pages, his, his latest one. <laughs> oh, okay. He's Barack Obama. I, I could ne- yeah, exactly. Could never get away with that. It should not be more than 85,000 words. Mine is 86,000 words. I really had to pick and choose to decide. This tells the story. Yeah. This, is, this is interesting, but it doesn't really move the narrative. It's mm-hmm. not so important to it. Or even if it does, this other thing does it more. There's really nothing really corporate yeah. in your book. Exactly. Nothing at all. Yeah. Absolutely nothing at all. Throwing that in there would have... I would, I would have gone off and it would have been a tangent, really. And this is something I, memoirs have to resist going off on tangents. In a memoir, it can easily become... I was sitting in a cafe in, in Malta and the waiter who served me wore a shirt that was the same pattern as the uh, skirt my roommate at college always wore. And those colors were my mother's favorite colors. You can just go on on and on. It's funny that you should mention about details. Yeah. Because your recollection of events and experiences in this book are so Mm. vivid. The level of detail allows the reader to really feel and imagine these experiences together with you. Did you keep a diary? Did you keep a journal of all of your... No. How did you do that? I will tell you that memoirists know, they learn that detail is important. This is how you bring your readers in. You want them to see your story. And one of the ways they do that is through detail. For example, when we were living with the man in the south of France and cooking macrobiotic food for him, and I wrote that in the story, and then the developmental editors said, well, what did you make? What did you eat? And I thought, well, this is, you know, Sumaranai. This is not important. This right. is something boring. Why, you know, why would a reader even be interested? Yeah. But I thought, I did remember, so I did yeah. include it. And this, again, is something readers respond to. Yeah. And as I said in the beginning, think about the reader. I was there. I knew what we made. 
I remember it, but the reader wasn't. Maybe the reader had never been to France. Yeah, the way you described the kitchen in the castle where you were cooking yeah. made me feel like I was right there. I oh. could imagine it. And I, was, oh, I was reading this, I was like, how does she remember all of that? I, this is great. And especially that part, I have nothing written. The trip across Europe into Afghanistan, India, etc., I had written part of that a few years after the experience. So I had it on paper. But a lot of it was really just memory. Really yeah. You didn't memory. keep a diary? I didn't, I didn't keep no a diary. I, I mentioned that I had a diary when I lived on Futokoroyama. That diary I only wrote in when I was depressed, as I, I said. And so there's very, very little there. Probably don't want to revisit that yeah, content no, either. I was just like, yeah. <laughs> a good memory is not a bad thing for a memoirist. This is something... You, I you think need. it's essential. Yeah. Detail and fact, it's really uh, important. At one point, Andrew, I, was, I remember I was writing. I called out to my husband. You know, when we drove from Tehran to the border of Afghanistan, did it take nine hours or was it more like 10 or 11 hours? He couldn't remember. I couldn't remember. But after a while, you realize that's not important. But what I do remember is meeting with the judge at the border of Iran, and I remember that he had a hairy body and that he was getting a massage literally in the courtyard of his home when we went there, and that he was very helpful um, to us and helped us to arrange to be able to pay for these exit visas, and one of the ways I was able to pay is by giving away this winter coat, and this was more of the story. Would you like to write another book? Another memoir or just another book? Well, you've already written one Your memoir, memoir. Yeah. probably another part two. But I think you like the process of writing, right? You, you obviously know structure now. Yeah, so, no, uh, I, I love writing. I absolutely love yeah. it. I'm working on a novel. I'm completing a novel. I won't say much more about it. Okay. You'll find out about it when it's in print. When's yeah. going to be out? I don't know yet. Any hints? Insights? Okay. Come on, Karen, give, it, give us a little a, a li- a teaser. A, a little something, and that is that it's the second novel I've written. Uh, the first I wrote and, and didn't publish, and it was largely autobiographical. And now that I've done the, the memoir, that one it will never uh, be published. But the second one was one I started, and I'm not even sure now, now why I put it away, but just a few months ago I took it out and... I thought, well, let me see what's here. I took it out, and I can tell you I was honestly surprised that I had 17 chapters. Oh, my gosh. Over 150 pages. And I started reading it, and I thought, these people are interesting. Is it based in Japan? It is based in Japan. Okay. Uh, Okay, so I won't won't say much more. Yeah. You wrote, you are educated but not schooled. Mm -hmm. I really like that quote. What specifically do you mean by that? I mean that I don't have a university education for many reasons, but mainly I didn't have the opportunity. It's my experience. There's much to be learned from reading, from being in the world, from paying attention, being observant, from learning from other people, experiences, knowing what's valuable, what's meaningful, what I can use, what will help me grow. 
I haven't been sleepwalking through life. It's the school and, of hard knocks. Yeah, you can call it the school of a hard, hard knocks. But I feel I am an educated person. I mean, I'm not comparing myself to someone who has a PhD or anything, but I have no sense of self-denigration because I don't have a, a university education. Yeah. Great. Over 45 years in Japan, aside from your family, what is your proudest achievement? Now, pride is a word I never use. Well, let me rephrase it then. What's your most satisfactory achievement? Other than my family? Yes. Okay, because they really are number one. Now, I could say the memoir. Because it encompasses everything in a way. Yeah, it really does. It brings every, everything together for me. I, I was able to put down on paper what I feel was important about my life. Karen, what is your favorite Japanese word which does not have an exact English translation? Choto. Choto. It's one of those words, okay? It's one word, and it can mean so many things. Okay, for example, if my husband said to me, um, what about nabe tonight? And I say, mm, choto. Yeah, means, yeah. Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, I'm not really feeling it. If someone were to, to ask me, what about Mariko? Do you think she should come or, she, you know, is someone we should invite? And I go, choto. Yeah. And then you would think, maybe yeah. not. Or yeah. it could even mean I'm thinking about it. It's not an absolute no. I mean, I could give other examples, but probably, you know, I, I don't know if, if I use it a lot. Good chance I do. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of uses yeah. for that. You were open in your criticism of Japan's education system with its conformity and processed learning. How did you deal with this as your four kids went through the Japanese school system? Uh, I learned to accept it, <laughs> first of all. Yeah, it wasn't so much a hard time uh, with it in the beginning as, yeah, I, I rejected it. You know, the, the uniforms, the, the six-day school week, the long school days, you know, the constant test-taking and being measured by your seiseki, you know, the class standing. Did you try to counterbalance that at home, mm -hmm. injecting a little bit of your Americanness in them? I don't think it's so much, you know, trying to. It's that I am American, my husband's American, and we are who we are, and we, we never hid that. So they may have been in this very strict school system, but at the same time, they knew that, you know, they had a mother who did reggae while she was cooking, you yeah. know, and a father who blasted Latin music whenever he felt like it. You know, that I mean, that's just who we are. Right? In that <laughs> regards, it. cheers. Karen, cheers, thank you cheers. for coming. Thank you. The view from Breast Pocket Mountain is a deeply moving narrative full of riveting adventure, some heartbreak, amazing challenges, and fascinating people. It's available for delivery tomorrow from Amazon. Karen, thank you for writing this inspiring memoir, and thank you for taking your time today for Now and Zen. Thank you so much, Andrew, for this very, very enjoyable podcast interview. And that was Karen Hill Anton. I really recommend her book, The View from Breast Pocket Mountain. We only touch the surface content from this inspiring memoir. If you would like to know more about Karen or order her book, visit her website at karenhillanton.com. You can also order it from Amazon. If you like this conversation with Karen, then check out more Now and Zen episodes at nowandzen.jp. 
If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe. This will allow you to also leave a much appreciated review. Until next time, thanks everyone. Thanks everyone.